Well, good afternoon. It's nice to see you all here. It's good to imagine you all at home, those of you who are tuning in. This, this in many ways, is the greatest and best time in the week. Uh, what a great thing it is to gather around God's word and, uh, and hear him speak to us. Benjamin Franklin was one of the founding fathers of the United States of America, president. And in 1879, he wrote in a letter to a friend. I wasn't sure whether I should make this a quiz. He wrote a famous quote in a letter to a friend of his, and he said this in this letter, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Very good. Big bonus points to all of you. Only two things in life are certain, death and taxes. It's a bit of a sad outlook on life, isn't it? I don't know who his friend was or whether the rest of the letter was more encouraging. But there is some truth in it, isn't there? None of us uh, can escape paying tax. My, my dad used to say that he'd paid enough tax in his lifetime to buy a battleship. I wasn't sure. If he was that well off, but um, maybe over a lifetime, it amounts to a lot of money, isn't it? We, we can't avoid paying tax, and none of us can avoid death. The reason I mention that quote is because you could say that this next passage that we're looking at, at the end of chapter 17, is all about death and taxes. Look with me at verse 22, where Jesus, again predicts his imminent betrayal and death. And then we have this very strange little exchange about tax. When I first read this, I, I was wondering what on earth we could learn <laughs> from, from a passage uh, like this. Um, but it, 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 it's sort of tempting, in a, even in a preaching schedule, to skip over this little narrative as an intrusion into the text and dive straight into chapter 18. We will get there uh, next week. But I think as I've been digging into this passage this week, lots of big pennies have dropped for me. I've, I feel like I've learned a great deal uh, this week. These, these verses actually are perfectly placed here at this point by Matthew. And they're really important in setting up what Jesus goes on to say that we'll be thinking about over the next weeks in chapter 18. What this bizarre question about tax leads to is Jesus talking about family. God's own royal family so let's uh, begin by having a little dig into the background here so we can understand a little of a little more of what's going on and then we'll try to unpick what jesus is teaching us here about his kingdom being a family does that sound like a plan well well that's what we're going to do anyway uh the, the background, first of all, just, just three quick things. We'll skip through these. First of all, I want you to uh, see that this is a flying visit home. 
Um, we've not been doing much flying visits during COVID, have we? But Jesus, you know now, is heading south to Jerusalem. And first of all, the whole group gathers in Galilee, the region of Galilee, where Lake Galilee is, says that in verse 22. When they came together, the whole entourage comes together in the region of Galilee. Then in verse 24, Matthew tells us that Jesus and his disciples arrive more specifically in the town of Capernaum. Capernaum is on the very northwest uh, part of Lake Galilee. It's a very beautiful area. And um, this is where Peter and some of the other disciples had lived and worked. And um, it's, it's also become a base for Jesus and his friends over, the, over maybe the last couple of years. Capernaum is home, in a sense. Jesus is basically coming home for the very last time. I, I, I want to say they're gathering their things, but I'm not sure they have many things. But they're, they're coming home for the last time to then set out for Jerusalem. At the, chapter 19, chapter 18 is all teaching, and we'll get to that. But in verse 1 of chapter 19, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea. They're going to Jerusalem. So you get the idea. This is a flying visit home. Secondly, here is a question that is essentially about tax. As, as this group arrives in Capernaum, some tax collectors approach Peter, maybe because they're, they're, they're most likely all staying in and around Peter's house. And I, I think the NIV makes their question sound a little bit negative, as if they're like confront, confronting. It sounds more confrontational in the NIV, I think. Uh, apparently, this is, is, it's, it's really a question that's expecting a yes as an answer. Your teacher does pay the temple tax, doesn't he? And the, and the answer to that question, the implied answer, is, is a yes. So what is this tax that they speak of? The first thing to say here is that this is not a state or a government tax that we're talking about here, like income tax or VAT that's paid to the government, the Roman Empire. Uh, actually, Jesus uh, deals with that kind of state tax later in chapter 22 when he's asked about it. And he famously says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. So he's talking about politics then. This tax here, these men describe it as the temple tax. This is what we might call a religious tax so a custom had arisen it's loosely based on things that happened in the old testament but this this was a tradition that had arisen that every year each jewish man over 20 years old had to pay a half shekel tax towards the upkeep of the temple in jerusalem and it was always collected once a year probably a little bit earlier than this time of year, just before the Passover, which has tended to correspond with our Easter. So for a whole month before the Passover, this half a shekel tax was collected. Now, if you were privileged to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, you could pay it at the temple when you got there in person. And because it had to be paid in this weirdly archaic shekels, that's why they had money changers in the temple 
to change your drachma into shekels so that you could pay. And the whole thing had escalated into a ridiculous extortion racket. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus later furiously kicks over the money changers' tables in the temple when he, get, when he finally gets to Jerusalem. How dare you make my father's house a den of thieves, Jesus says, and he kicks over the tables and money flies everywhere. And it's all to do with this half shekel temple tax being a weird currency. But if you didn't go to Jerusalem, which not everyone did, of course, you could pay this tax in your hometown. And this was happening all over the empire, wherever Jews lived. If you were in your hometown, you would be asked to pay this tax. And at some point, the first century equivalent of Securico armoured vehicles would take all of this coinage to Jerusalem before the Passover in order to fund the temple sacrifices. Uh, this tax was worth roughly two days' wages. So it, it, this is not a small sum. And lots of people didn't agree with it at all. Some people apparently protested by paying it once, as if I'm going to pay it once in my lifetime. I'm not paying this every year. So some people had that. Some groups um, just felt it was unjust and unfair and simply refused if you were a priest or a rabbi, you, were a lot, you, had, you had an exemption certificate and you didn't have to pay it. Which is interesting in Jesus' case, he wasn't formally trained as a rabbi, but um, it's interesting that they come to the disciples here and say to Peter, your teacher, your rabbi does pay the temple tax, doesn't he? So you, you get a sense that it's a bit of a grey area whether Jesus is really a rabbi or, or not. So the upshot is that this tax wasn't legally enforceable by the state. But if you were a loyal Jew, you were expected to pay it. And those who did pay it, I think, would consider those who didn't pay it to be a little bit unpatriotic. So picture the scene here. They're coming to their hometown, Capernaum. The Passover is now quite close. And as they, are, as they gather together for the last time before they go to Jerusalem, these tax collectors come. They show up. They don't have any legal power. These guys are basically part of, I, I want to call it like a community persuasion team. Their job was to remind people and to cajole people, perhaps even to guilt people into paying their half shekel tax. I, th I do think that they're playing nicely here. And they're basically just doing their jobs. But there are some undertones to their question. Remember that we've seen Jesus in Matthew already clash with the figures from the religious establishment. He's not afraid to cause offence when the time is right to stand up for something. So their question is a fair one. Is, your teacher is going to pay the, the half shekel tax, isn't he? And what Jesus, how Jesus responds here is influential. Jesus is a well-known figure. If he chooses to not pay, he's going to start a trend. And these guys are anxious. If he chooses to pay, they can hold him up as an example and say, well, Jesus is paid. And it gives them so, a little bit of kind of authority in a sense. Now, this is one of those times where Peter, we love Peter. Peter's like, I know the answer to this one. 
I, I know the answer to this one. Uh, thanks for asking. <laughs> he could have said, Jesus is right here. Why don't you ask him yourself? But Peter is like, his instinct is to defend Jesus's honour. And without a moment's hesitation, without checking with Jesus, Peter confirms, of course Jesus will be paying his half shackle tax. Absolutely. There's no question about it. But as Peter then comes into the house, presumably his own house, look what Matthew says in verse 25. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. And he gives Peter a little scenario to think about. So although Peter is totally confident that he knows what Jesus will do, it does seem that there's more to this situation than meets the eye. And maybe Peter has been a little bit hasty in answering for Jesus too quickly and not checking with him what he was thinking. 30 then, I've entitled this an illuminating comparison. Jesus is a great teacher and he's very fond of saying, what do you think? Um, it, this comes again in Matthew of the next chapters as Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He, off, he, he seems to say, what do you think? And then he'll, he does it here with Simon Peter. What do you think, Simon? Do the kings of the earth collect taxes from their citizens or from their own families? That's the question. And Peter thinks, bonus, twice in one day I've known the answer to a question. I know this one as well. This is a great day for Peter. It's obvious, isn't it? No king in the history of kings has ever taxed his own kids. Haven't they? Kings tax their subjects and their citizens, but they don't tax their own families. That would be ridiculous. So Jesus gives the punchline. Then the sons are exempt. Now, the contrast that Jesus is making here is between the kings of the earth and whoever the king of the temple is. But the king of the temple, if there is one, is ultimately God himself. And Matthew has spent the last two chapters showing us in this narrative that Jesus is the son of God from heaven. God is his father in a unique sense. So the conclusion is, why on earth would Jesus, the great son, be required to pay a tax to his own father's temple? He's not exempt because he's a rabbi. That's a grey area, but that's not the point here. And Jesus is not protesting here and claiming to be exempt because the tax is unfair. Although it is a fair bet that Jesus doesn't like it at all. Jesus is saying that he's exempt because God is his father and it's his temple. And because God is his father, he's family. And if he's family, he's free. The crazy thing is that having established this principle in private, in Peter's house, Jesus then goes on to pay the tax for himself and for Peter anyway, by means 
of an even stranger miracle. Jesus doesn't have to pay the tax, but he says here to Peter, but so that we may not cause offence, here's what I want you to do. Pay your tax and pay mine as well. It's an incredible, quirky exchange. There's wisdom, isn't there, in knowing when to make a stand and when to let something go. And Jesus is saying, I don't have to do it, but I'll do it anyway. So he's picking his fights, you know, he's not afraid to cause offence, but on this occasion, he makes his point and then pays it anyway. Now, here's the big idea that I want to get to. One commentator I came across sums this whole passage up brilliantly in one sentence, which I can't do any better than, and it's this. God does not tax his own children. Instead, he lovingly provides for them everything they need. Here it is. Just let that sink in for a moment. God does not tax his own children. He lovingly provides for them everything that they need. I think once we grasp this truth, this quirky little passage becomes a tremendous window into the wonderful perspective that Jesus has. Jesus is not just underlining here that he is the great son, again. He's telling us something about the nature of his father, who is generous and kind. And he's telling us something that when he thinks about his kingdom, the first thing that springs to mind for Jesus when he thinks about the kingdom of God is that it's a family. Isn't that incredible? The first thing that Jesus thinks when he thinks about his kingdom is that it's family. God is a father and his kingdom is family. Let me try and break this idea down then under three headings. I want to talk about family love, family life, and then we'll just touch briefly at the end about family likeness. So first of all, family love. For Jesus, the whole foundation of this kingdom that he came to bring is love. This is a kingdom, the kingdom of God, that is established by a loving father. And this means that the kingdom is therefore most like a family. Now, you will, of course, know that in the Bible, God is described using many metaphors. He is described as a king and as a judge and as a ruler. But Jesus is highlighting and underlining something else here that has always been there. And it's underneath all the other descriptions. God has always been a father. 
Why? Because there's always been a son. God is first and foremost a father. How do you conceive of and think about God? Is he first of all a king, a ruler, a lawgiver? For Jesus, God is the eternal father. Our triune God is, in a sense, he he has always been a family. And it is this warm, relational, loving, family-ness, which is not a word, family-ness in God is what joyfully overflows into creation and becomes the foundation of the good news of this new kingdom. Jesus speaks here of the kings of the earth. But the king of heaven, the supreme ruler, the great creator, reveals himself to us as a loving father. And he sent his son to expand his family. Jesus came into the world to bring those who would put them outside, put themselves outside of the family into the loving orbit of this family again. Isn't it striking that when Jesus uses this illustration, just look at the end of verse 25. Or, sorry, the start of verse 26. Jesus says, then the sons are exempt. Jesus could have said there, then I am exempt. Couldn't he? He's making a point just about him. But he says, then the sons are exempt. I think there's more than a hint here that although Jesus is the true and great and eternal son, he includes in this all of those who love him and follow him. They're all brought by him into the same loving family. Jesus is saying to Peter and the others, you, you're all family. And because you're family, you're as free as I am. That's the point that Jesus here is making. I I think when we read Matthew Once you see the fatherliness of God in Matthew, you can't unsee it. Go back sometime this week and read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. And see how many times Jesus points his friends to their father in heaven. When Jesus taught his friends to pray, how did he tell them to start? Our father in heaven. So Jesus comes to establish a new kingdom, yes. But his conception of that kingdom, he sees it primarily as a family that is established and grounded in the Father's great love. Jesus is the Savior who was sent by the Father to remove the barrier of sin and bring us back into This family. And this is a father who doesn't tax his children. He lovingly provides for them 
everything that they need. I do love the fact that when we talk about our church, we often refer to it as our church family. I have to tell you that we haven't deliberately set out to do that. There's no mission statement somewhere that says, make sure everyone calls church, church family. I don't know how that happened. It just seems to have automatically become how we talk. What a thrill and delight that is. Friends, we're not a business. We're not a corporation. We're not an organization or any other kind of structured system. What we are, by the grace of God, is a family established in and sustained by our Father's great love for his precious children. Oh man, number two, family life. One of the things that is not immediately apparent or obvious here, I I think, is that Jesus here is very subtly, I think, putting a marker down also about who is in this family and who isn't in this family. And the question about the temple tax is, is very relevant to this 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 idea that some people are in the family and some people are outside of it. So here, here, here's how I want to unpick this. The temple represents a religious system. And that system was meant to be good and glorious. But it was terribly broken. It had failed. And there's a real sense in which now it was passing away. Because it had failed. And something new is here. The old is going and the new has arrived. And I think what Jesus is doing here, he is contrasting the old broken religious system, if you like. And he's comparing that with a completely new family. You get that? It's a a contrast that he's making. The friction that is so often apparent in Matthew and the other Gospels is because Jesus has come to supersede and replace a system that was disintegrating. There's a religious system there that has not been what it should have been and what it was meant to be. But now, a new and fruitful family has been born. What is it then that is different and new about life in this new family? We've seen, first of all, that it's established and grounded in love. But what difference does that make to family life? This year, it just so happens that in my own personal devotions, I've been reading and studying the book of Isaiah. I've never done that before in in my life in in any detail kind of way. The last couple of years I've tried to read the Bible in a year and that's quite quick. But this year I've been lingering since the start of the year 
in in the book of Matthew, book of Matthew, book of Matthew as well, book of Isaiah. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet, and there's there's bad news and good news in 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 Isaiah. Through Isaiah, God first of all provides a devastating, scathing critique of the attitudes and the lives of his own people, the nation, their failure. But then God, through the prophet Isaiah, introduces the incredible hope that there is a great king who will one day come, who is also a humble servant and a mighty conqueror, And he's the one who will have the power to save his failing people, his wayward, guilty, helpless people. As we're going through Matthew, and as I've been reading Isaiah in the background, it dawns on me that as we read Matthew, what what I feel like I'm saying is the perfect fulfillment of everything that I've been reading in Isaiah. The religious system is broken. But there's a wonderful, mighty saviour who was promised. God's assessment of the nation is very detailed, but it basically boiled down to two clear criticisms. Firstly, they, they turned the religious system into a way of trying to get God to do what they wanted him to do. And secondly, they hid behind the religious system to avoid loving other people when it was costly. There's lots of stuff in Isaiah, but that's the two criticisms boiled down to a nutshell. Firstly then, they worked so hard. They weren't lazy. They worked so hard fulfilling religious rituals. But in their hearts, all of it had become a way to try and get God to do what they wanted him to do. They were trying to put God under pressure to respond to them. Their religion had become a means of trying to manipulate God. Sometimes they even complained to God. Look at all the sacrifices we've made for you. Why are you not blessing us? And God's in Isaiah's like, it would help if you loved me. <laughs> the sad byproduct of all of this, too, is that it made them feel superior and to look down on others. It deadened their sensitivity to the vulnerable. They didn't seem to care about injustice. The system. The system became more important than people. Does that sound familiar? They became more concerned to protect the system than to love the needy. And so the system tended to spit victims out instead of care for them and heal them and love them. In a system that was meant to be about love, They'd forgotten how to be generous. And it had become too costly to be kind. 
If religion makes people self-righteous and unkind, there's something wrong with it. Isn't there? The system had become exhausting. A proud and unsatisfying treadmill. They were ritually zealous, but socially indifferent. They, they were outwardly righteous and inwardly dead. And a religious system that should have been glorious and a light to the world had become an empty shell, a shadow of what it was meant to be. Now, can you see how the concept of God being a loving father turns such a religious system completely on its head? First of all, it makes no sense to try and manipulate such a God to respond to us. Surely, what counts is us being delighted to respond to his generosity to us. This God is not a taker. He's a giver. He's not a slave driver but a loving father. And it's not our sacrifices for him that make a difference. Actually, it's his sacrifices for us that make all the difference in the world. This father gladly sent his son to be our saviour. This father is not asking us to try hard to save ourselves. Despite our sin, this Father invites us to stop running and to come and trust in and respond to and delight in and bask in his love and kindness shown to us. But secondly, the whole idea is that when we know we are loved by such a Father, we are free to love others. Can I, can I say that this was true for Jesus himself? He literally, he quite literally gave himself away. How? Because he knew underneath it all that he was loved. That his father was pleased with him. Delighted in him. Smiled on him. Jesus didn't need to love other people in a manipulative way because he was trying to get them to do something or because something was missing that he, Jesus already had everything that he needed. This is why he could give generously. This is why he doesn't have to stand on his rights and stamp his feet and say, do you not know who I am? His father knows who he is. This is why he wasn't shaped by the fear of other people. This is how Jesus was able to humble himself, to become one of us and then to die the death that we deserve. My point is that knowing the security 
of the Father's love, the very thing that will liberate us to give ourselves away. You can't do it if you don't know that. It turns out then that the whole ethic of this new family, its life together, is that we love others because we are loved first. We rest in that. We believe that. We are refreshed and energized by that. It inspires us and it opens our eyes so that instead of not seeing others, we begin to see others and to love them with the same love with which we've been loved. So this is a family that first of all is established in a father's love and life in this family contrasts with a broken religious system. In this family, life is one of joyful faith and glad obedience and mutual love and deep gratitude. This is why the gospel changes the world. Lastly, I want to touch on the idea, thirdly, of family likeness. Next week, you'll be glad to know, not today, (laughs) we're going to start looking at chapter 18. We're going to go slowly through chapter 18, quite deliberately. But I hadn't really appreciated until this last week how much this little passage prepares us for that. And the reason is that the whole of the next chapter is a block of teaching that Jesus gives to his friends. Read it this week. It is all about how they are to relate to one another in this new family. It turns out that family life can be messy and hard. Chapter 18, verse 1, after all of this, the first question they ask is, who's the greatest then in the kingdom of heaven? Families are messy. (laughs) We'll get to all of that over the next weeks. But this passage is an important little pivot. Prior to this point, we've seen something of what Jesus is like. And here Jesus says to his friends, you are family. After this, in chapter 18, Jesus is saying, this then is how you should live in this family. In other words, Jesus is the one who shapes the family. His family is like him. What he is like, his family reflects. Even last week, we were seeing something of his gentle tenderness, his courageous love, his tremendous patience. If this is who Jesus is, his followers should smell like him. What Jesus is like should shape what the church is like. And if the family is not like Jesus, something has gone wrong. 
If you want this family to be like Jesus, do you know what the best thing you can do is? To know him better. Because the more you know him and see him and love him and drink him in, the more you'll be like him. We're almost done. As we wrap this up, I'm, I'm very conscious that I haven't really touched on the quirky miracle that is odd for all sorts of reasons. It seems to be the only miracle that is for Jesus himself rather than for others. Did that strike you? It's also odd that Matthew just leaves it hanging. Normally, it, you know, Jesus gives an instruction and then Matthew says that and, and it kind of, conf- this one just, it just seems to be left hanging, which is a little odd. I also feel sorry for the other disciples because Jesus tells Peter to go and get his line. This is not net fishing. He tells him to go and sit on the jetty, drop his line in, catch a fish. There'll be a coin. I can imagine all the other disciples stood behind him saying, Peter, drop your line in again. Maybe there's another fish that's got a coin as well that could cover my tax. It's just very odd, isn't it? Here's the thing, though. In the end, surely even the quirky little miracle sums up the same truth. I don't don't know the answer to any of the questions about this quirky miracle. But God does not tax his children. He lovingly provides everything that they need. The point is, even here, God provides for Jesus so that he can pay a tax he didn't really owe. And in doing so, he pays for Peter as well. As we close, in the end, surely there's of the Father's generosity in the gospel, doesn't it? God sent his son Jesus to pay a far bigger debt than a half a shekel temple tax. In reality, I... Oh God, a lot more than that. And there are, mo- there are no money changes who can convert my feeble currency into one that prevails. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem where he will prove once and for all through his cross that God never taxes his children but provides for them everything they need. This loving father provides an even greater miracle than this one by sending Jesus to pay our debts and bring us into his family. In the end, Jesus was taxed to the hilt so that you and I could go tax-free. We started today with Benjamin Franklin's quip about the certainty of death and taxes. But the remarkable thing is that the great, free, ultimate son who didn't deserve to die and who didn't owe anybody anything willingly came in order to pay our debts and to die our death. This is a strange passage. 
But Jesus is teaching his friends here a lot about the nature of his kingdom. It's established in love and by the debt paying and life bringing work of his son. And the followers of Jesus, therefore, and this means that they're not under an old dead religious system, but they're forgiven and they are truly free. Praise God. Let's uh, pray, shall we? We'll bow to do that. Father, we thank you that you are a generous and kind Father. We thank you that it never occurred to you to tax your own children. But in your heart is the instinctive generosity to provide everything that we need. We thank you for sending Jesus to pay our debts, to die our death. We thank you for bringing us into your family and we thank you that our church here is part of that great family. Father, would you help us not to be dead but alive? Would you help us to know your generosity and your love so that we can Bless others with what we've been blessed with ourselves. Lord, may our church family be alive and vibrant and, and full of light and love because of Jesus. Thank you that he is a mighty saviour. We pray that you would burn your word into our hearts. And we pray in his powerful and good name. Amen.